Hello and welcome to One Great 150, our exploration of 150 plus years of Winnipeg history. Hey! Uh, I'm Alex. I'm Sabrina. And we're here with Brandon producer Nick. Episode 15. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. Yeah, how are you guys feeling? Tired? <laughs> it's been a good year of like focusing on a series. Like, yeah, I, it has I kind of liked that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it has been cool to have that kind of like overarching theme. Yeah, the consistency of it. Yes. Yeah, but it has been a lot, an awful lot of work. And I feel like Nick and I are both coming into her. Nick's been having some throat issues, and I am coming out of the tail end of a cold where I napped for like two days. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad that the energy's a little higher. I was a little worried coming in that I was going to like doze off, but I think I can make it through. I mean, if I can't keep my co-host awake during an episode, <laughs> that's not a good sign. Yeah, hopefully no one's listening while driving. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, before we dive in, though, I do want to mention that we're going to be finishing off the series with a live show. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be November 8th, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. in the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library. Um, it's yeah. going to be lots of fun. We'll have snacks. I know that's obviously a key thing for a lot of people. <laughs> we'll have dainties and it'll be free. Yes. Yeah. Anything else is incidental. Yep. We don't even have to turn up. <laughs> and if you don't live in Winnipeg, we are going to be recording it for a future podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so you can... Hear all about it. All of our fun visual gigs will surely do. (laughs) You ever see that Dimitri Martin special where he's like recording an album and he's like, so this is being recorded for audio. So I'm going to have someone describing the visual gags. No. He works with a lot of like, like a sketch pad and stuff. So. So that's what we'll have you do, Nick, is go back in afterwards and (laughs) And describe describe. (laughs) our very funny PowerPoint slides we're working on. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so this is, well, I guess our last episode focusing on a person. Yeah, and kind of the last episode where, like, one of us is leading it. Yeah, so we're going to have one last episode wrapping everything up. Um, but our last person is uh, Daphne Ojig. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been really excited about this one because I, like, I love Daphne Ojig's art. Um, I've also been a little bit nervous, though, because I am not an art historian. The thing is, though, like, out of the two of us, you are more of an art person than me. Yes. So, like, so it would be worse if I did it, if that makes you feel yeah, any better. I mean, I think I, like, have a casual background in terms of, like, I enjoy art. I go to art galleries. Yeah. But I don't necessarily have the vocabulary. Right. I'm also not an Indigenous person. Right. So um, I talked to um, Francesca Hebert-Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, she is Anishinaabe from Winnipeg. She's also a member of Sag King First Nation, um, and she's an artist as well as a curator and a PhD student. And a U of W alum, just like us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so she's in, um, I think she's in Inuvik right now, so, but, yeah. Yeah, you had told me that the recording had some um, sound issues. Yeah, unfortunately, so the audio on those is not going to be, like, the the best, but I think they're worth listening to yeah, anyway. Yeah, we'll muddle through. Also, yeah. there was a blizzard in Inuvik. There, so was like... a, there was a blizzard, and she was really far away, and yeah, so, oh well. It is what it is. It is what it is. Also, just off the top, the word Indian is going to come up in this episode quite a bit, Um in Canada, that's not really a term we use anymore. Um, so just know that when I do use it, it's in the context of either like a quotation or like the historical name for an organization, things mm-hmm. like that. We definitely don't recommend you go around using that term. <laughs> no. Okay, so yeah, let's get into it. Mm-hmm. So Daphne Ojig was born in Wikwemakong, which is an Anishinaabe community on Manitoulin Island in Ontario. Um, further back, though, I think her ancestry was Potawatomi, and her early childhood sounds, like, really lovely, actually. Does it? Yeah. She lived on a farm, which was, like, a lot of work, but a lot of fun, too. Um, she had a pet lamb named Molly. Oh. And, like, a bunch of siblings. She was the oldest of several children. 
um, and like really close to her siblings as well as her uh, parents, her dad Dominic and her mom Joyce and her paternal grandfather Jonas. Um, so her mother Joyce was actually English and she, I, I saw a bunch of sources referring to her as a war bride, which seems like a very like old fashioned term. Yeah. <laughs> but basically she met Dominic when he was um, like during World War One when he was uh, oh serving yeah serving course. yeah so and then she followed him back to his home community in canada um but an interesting side story here is that joyce's mother and uh her siblings actually came as well like the whole family came oh wow everyone moved over yeah to manitoulin island too yes yeah hey that's quite a big change to make from like living in england yeah especially if they're like anywhere remotely urban yeah so this is not that important to the story actually but i just thought it was like an interesting kind of like fun family drama story Mm -hmm. so joyce's father had died in the war and afterwards when her mother went to apply for his like war pension she discovered that there had been another wife (gasps) so this is why she basically like cut her losses in england and was like okay guess i'm gonna go to canada with my daughter (laughs) Yeah, I guess, what else are you going to do? And she eventually remarried and everything was fine, but that's, yeah. Anyway. What a twist. What a twist. (laughs) So one dark spot, though, in Daphne's childhood was that Joyce was pretty often in poor health. Um, She was, like, more or less housebound. Um, She had had rheumatic fever as a child. I don't feel like we hear about people getting that anymore. No. Do people still get rheumatic fever? I'm sure they do. Yeah. But I don't. I don't know anyone personally that has had it. Yeah, but she had essentially been left with, like, a weakened heart. So her whole life was, like, quite weak. Um, so Daphne, as the oldest, did a lot of work caring for the siblings. And, like, also their dad, you know, was obviously pretty busy because he had to work. And also was, you know, caring for the, the uh, numerous children yes, a lot. the big family. Yeah. Um, but Joyce sounds like a really, like, warm and loving mother. She did her best to care for her children in the way she could. She'd, like, knit socks and mittens for them and, like, mm-hmm. wait for them when they got home. Um, and Daphne attended a Jesuit day school as a kid, um, and she actually really liked it. Okay. Like, obviously, Indigenous people have very mixed experiences of those schools. It's often not very positive. Overwhelmingly so, I would say. Yeah, I think, and I think also when she got older, she had more complicated feelings about it. Yeah. Especially the kind of assimilationist aspect Mm -hmm. of it. But at the time, she, like, she really liked it. She wanted to be a teacher when she grew up. She'd do, like, the classic kid thing where she'd make all, like, the neighborhood kids, like, sit and take lessons from her. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. Um, But the age of 13, she actually also contracted rheumatic fever. Oh, no. Um, So, obviously, this freaked her mom out, right? Mm Because this had caused such troubles in her life, had, had really, you know, disabled her. So, she took extremely good care of Daphne while she was ill. Like, she hired someone to come in and care for her. Um... So it was still difficult, but she basically had, like, the best care that she could. Um, And while she was sick, her grandfather Jonas took over her education. So while she missed going to school, the benefit was that she got to be, like, really close to him and to her mother. Oh, yeah. So she says, I learned to paint by sketching with my grandfather Jonas, who was a tombstone carver, and with my father. We spent hours and hours sketching. I used to accompany my grandfather on sketching excursions. He taught me about curvilinear design while he told me about the stories of our ancestors. So Daphne did eventually recover. She spends about three years just kind of more or less housebound. Um, and after that, she's kind of okay. I mean, it sounds like she had some like valuable experiences out of it, though. Yeah, 100%. Getting like that family knowledge passed down is kind of a rarity for a lot of Indigenous families. Yeah, and I think it, it also sort of 
interrupted, I guess, that process of, like, assimilation that she was experiencing at the Jesuit school, right? Totally. Um, Now, unfortunately, like, Jonas was obviously getting older, um, and her mother was also becoming quite weak at this point. Um, So Jonas eventually had to move to another one of his children's houses so that he could be, like, cared for, and Joyce unfortunately passes away when Daphne's around 18. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they need to kind of create lives for themselves, the children. So Daphne and her sister, uh, Winnie, they leave Wikwemekong. And she says that, like, growing up, they hadn't experienced prejudice that often. I guess, you know, they had been in their kind of smallish community. Mm -hmm. And, like, there had been things where, say, like, they'd go to, like, a school event, like a kind of... um, like, inter-school competition of some kind, and they'd, like, hear taunts, but they were really pretty sheltered. And so it hit pretty hard when they moved out of the community. Yeah, I could see that being a pretty big adjustment. Yeah, and especially because they first moved to Perry Sound, which is, like, kind of a small Ontario town. Mm-hmm. So I think things were pretty bad there, and they didn't stay there very long. They instead went to Toronto. Um, and this is during the Second World War at this point. Okay. So Daphne said, Toronto was a city of discovery for Indian people of my generation. I discovered that fear and insecurity were not unique to us, and I discovered that friendships could transcend ethnic isolation. Toronto had art galleries and libraries with books on art. I became fascinated with the works of the European masters. Picasso's freedom and lack of inhibition, Van Gogh's emotionalism, I responded powerfully to the emotions generated by their works. Every free moment I studied their styles and tried to duplicate their techniques. Yeah, so Daphne finds Toronto a lot easier, um, just because it's more it's more anonymous for yeah. one thing. Um, I mean, there's just more people there yes. too to like meet, right? Totally. Like the chances of you meeting someone who's like nice to you is much higher there that's, than in like that's a Perry really good Sound point too. And you know, if you're somewhere where people are not being nice to you, it's easier to find a different place and a different community yeah. within the city, right? And it sounds like at least finding access to like more art resources was a pretty big comfort too. Yeah, absolutely. That was a huge kind of discovery for her. Um, I will say, like, it sounds like she did internalize some of the prejudice that she encountered because she does start using the English translation of her last name, Ojig, so Fisher. So she goes by Daphne Fisher for a period of time. Um, So she works in a munitions factory. Like I said, it was World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, Also in a peanut factory. Huh. Yeah. And yeah, in her spare time, she explored the galleries of Toronto. And she eventually meets a soldier named Paul. So Paul was also of mixed white and indigenous ancestry. And so they had this kind of shared experience of like interwoven cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, But Paul was really like proud of his indigenous ancestry um, and proud of Daphne's heritage as well. Like she said that, okay, this sounds really bad in 2023, but she talks about this in a way that she enjoyed it. He called her his Indian princess. Okay. Yeah. Like I say, like, don't call someone that. (laughs) Wouldn't work today. I could see why that would be endearing at the time. Yes. At the, in like 1945 (laughs) um, or like 1950 or whatever. Um, Yeah. I think it was more endearing because I think what she felt was like, oh, this is someone who really loves that aspect of me. Yeah. Which is like kind of empowering and validating. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so Paul convinces Daphne to move to BC with him and his son, David, from a previous marriage. Uh, so they live together on a farm. Wow, she's just bouncing around. Oh, in this whole story, she bounces around a ton. Yeah, she spends a lot of time different living in a lot of different places. I mean, the cool thing about that is she picks up a lot of different inspirations. Yeah. Um, she picks up a lot of different contacts, which is really Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, so they have a son together named Stanley in 1948. So they've got David and Stanley together. 
Um, Paul also just, like, loved Daphne's artwork. He, like, encouraged her to create and to show other people the things that she had made. Um, and this was really valuable for Daphne, who was, like, a pretty harsh self-critic. She apparently was prone to, like, just burning stacks of her paintings. Oh, no. If they hadn't turned out how she wanted. <laughs> um, unfortunately, so they have a really lovely, like, 10, 12 plus years together. But in 1960, Paul is in, an, in a car accident and he dies sometime later in the hospital. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, so Daphne turns to trying to run the farm herself. Um, she plants a huge number of strawberries for whatever reason. Okay. But it works out really well. She, like, works, like, she talks about, like, working until after dark, like, planting strawberries. And she actually had to hire some people to help with the harvest because it went wow. so well. Okay, good for her. <laughs> yeah. That's not how I thought that was going to go. No, I was like, I don't know, somehow got really lucky with this strawberry like harvest. Monocrop techniques don't normally go over very well. That's true. She planted one crop as someone who, I mean, I guess, you know, she did have this childhood um, experience on the That's farm. That's true. So maybe she actually, like, knew what she was doing <laughs> in a way that I would not if no. I was trying to make a living on a farm. Maybe we're just used to stories of people who are, like, maybe a little too confident in their farming abilities than this they should true. be. This is true. We're coming at it having, like, talked about William Beale yeah. in a previous episode. Yeah, who didn't make things work so well. Um, but yeah, so the upshot of that is that because the harvest was so good, she actually has enough income to carry her and her two boys through the winter, which means that she can paint all winter long. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Which is like the best thing ever for an artist, right? Um, and she apparently painted like a lot. Like the way that Daphne painted was always really like without a ton of planning, like really quickly, she really wanted her paintings to be like expressive. They mm -hmm. were the thing that she was feeling and thinking about in the moment. Um, she apparently had so many paintings that at one point she began using the canvases to line the walls of the barn. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of her sons at some point, like the barn was like the house was being sold and he had to go back and like try and save some of them, <laughs> like tear them out of the walls. <laughs> Um, but part of the problem, the reason she has such a, like, backlog here is that she still wasn't exhibiting or selling her work for the most part. Oh, so she was just, like, kind of painting for her own sake. Yeah, she, a hundred percent. She's just painting for her own sake, um, and just kind of piling them up, you know? <laughs> um, so in 1962, Daphne remarries. She marries, uh, Chester Beaven. He was a community development officer, and she leaves the farm. Uh, so she moves with him first to Grand Rapids, and their experience there sounds pretty uncomfortable. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, I think the... So, okay. What had happened was that the Cree community who had previously lived in this area, they had had their traditional fishing spots near Grand Rapids. Like, they essentially, they had been flooded out of their settlement to build a dam um, and had been displaced several days' journey away from their traditional fishing grounds. Um. So at this point, they later move to that area, but at mm -hmm. this point, they're in Grand, Rapid, Grand Rapids, and the area does still include some kind of indigenous inhabitants, but also, like, white workers who are working on the dam right. project, and also the men who were in charge of the project. And the family found that, like, Daphne's Anishinaabe heritage um, helped her connect with the Cree inhabitants, but that most of the white people in the area were pretty, like, distrustful of Chester's job as oh. a development officer. Like, the project, I guess, it was, was sort of like a pilot project where they were sending development officers out to various communities. Okay. 
And it seems like, especially a lot of the people in charge were not very happy about that project. All right. I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a bigger thing. That... <laughs> There's a lot going on. There's there. a lot going on there. Yeah, they they actually end up sending Stanley to Winnipeg to finish up high school because they're worried that he'll face discrimination in the school there. Oh, and Winnipeg's a good place. Yeah, I mean, you know, things are pretty bad when you're like, surely Winnipeg. Will... Winnipeg in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Good point. <laughs> yeah. So they um they eventually end up moving to Easterville, which is where the community had been displaced to. Okay. Um, and she liked it there a lot better. Um, she saw the similarities between this community and like her own home community, which she really liked. Um, but she also saw that the people there were in this moment of like massive transition. And so like until their displacement, the Chimawawan uh, Cree community had been living a really traditional lifestyle, but now they had been uprooted from that. They're several days away. They don't like taking that time away from home to go fishing. Mm-hmm. So some people were still making the trip, but a lot of people were just kind of like at a loss. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's a story that happens to how many indigenous communities yeah. throughout this time and like even way before that. And Absolutely. Even now. Yeah. So I, mean, I can imagine the community during that like period of like just being sort of like kicked out, essentially being very confusing. Yeah. Just being like sort of what what do we do now to yeah. make a living and to support ourselves and to get food, you know? Um, so Daphne began... Um, drawing the people of Easterville and the and the surrounding community, partly because she wanted to like make a record of this mode of life that she was worried would disappear mm-hmm. pretty soon. Um, I think I sent you the story already from a book that I read, but I want to read it again because it's really cute. Uh, Daphne, so Daphne loved it when they knocked on her door after school and stood there on the st- doorstep, smiling up at her, waiting for her to invite them in. This is about the local children. Yeah. As soon as she asked them to enter, they filed over to their chairs. Uh, to the chairs. Daphne beamed at them, and they beamed back at her, silent. The little ones murmured, visit, visit. And hostess and guests sat there exchanging smiles as friendly feelings overcame shyness. When she showed these timid youngsters her sketches of themselves, their parents, their dogs, and horses, they laughed and laughed at this funny lady who put them all down on paper. Oh, I just think that's so cute. <laughs> Doesn't it go back a little bit to her being a teacher, right? That's, actually, that's a really good point. Yeah, that like that's what she had wanted to be when she was a little yeah. kid. Um. Yeah, that she's, like, bringing all these kids in, sort of making them feel at home and, like... Showing them reflections of themselves in their community. Yeah. And they just think that that's so funny. (laughs) I would also laugh if someone drew a picture of my parents. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Just my dad? Yeah. That's true. I mean, when it's when it's your family, hey, it, it, it wouldn't like really you would seem... be confused if someone announced like I've drawn a picture of your father, Michael. Yeah, I would be very confused <laughs> by that. <laughs> like, okay, I I guess. <laughs> Around 1964, Daphne brings Chester back to Wikwemakong to meet her family, and what she finds when she arrives back there, because she hasn't been home in a really long time, right, is really cool. Um, so Daphne says. In the early 1960s, I decided to visit my father and remaining family on the Wikwemekong Reserve. Excitement was everywhere, and it was infectious. An explosive resurgence of native culture was taking place. The first powwow was about to begin, organized by Rosemary, my brother's wife. In the late evenings, I talked with Rosemary about spirituality, Indian spirituality. I discovered my Indian consciousness had not really died. It had only been sleeping. One evening, Rosemary looked through my sketches. Have you ever thought of incorporating some Indian content into your work? She asked. Indian content? In my paintings? Would it still be art? I wondered. 
Sadly, Rosemary died a short time later, but her suggestion changed the direction, or gave new direction to my life and art. That's really cool. Yeah. So it's this really neat time period in some ways. Um, Like, Daphne and Rosemary, they begin traveling around the reserve, basically visiting elders and asking them, like, hey, can you know those stories that you told us when we were children? Can you tell those to us again? Mm -hmm. So that Daphne can begin to paint them. Um, And what was happening in her home community was also happening, like, across Canada and across North America as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can... I know some of my, like, relatives have had, like, sort of in paintings from this period of time that are more, like, Inuit paintings and indigenous paintings. Yeah. There's kind of a slight resurgence of that. Yeah, there's a resurgence. And this is also part of the broader, like, civil rights movement. Yeah, totally. Like, in the 50s and 60s, there's obviously this time of, like, civil rights movement action for, um, like, African Americans. And I think a lot of marginalized groups um, saw the, like, actions that they were taking and the success that they had had. And we're like, you know, we also deserve rights mm-hmm. and dignity and, and, you know, we're inspired by those. So people begin discussing, like, their rights and their identities and taking pride in their identities as well. There's also this, I think, like, growing sense of kinship across First Nations, I think, as they're kind of working together mm-hmm. towards this. Um, another factor also was that Indigenous people had just gained the vote in 1960. Right, yeah, of course. Yeah, so we've talked about this kind of a little bit before, mm-hmm. um, like in our Tommy Prince episode. Yeah. Because I think, was he, he got to vote during the war. Was he enfranchised afterwards? I don't remember. I don't think he was enfranchised, but okay. he found it like other people had been. Yeah, yeah so... Before 1960, Indigenous people had to become enfranchised in order to vote. But that came with the loss of, like, every other, like, quote, or perk in big quotation marks, (laughs) like, access to healthcare that they would have had otherwise. Yeah, so it meant formally surrendering Indian status, Mm -hmm. which meant, yeah, so losing access to to certain things that they had according to, like, treaty rights or the Indian Act. Also, they had to leave the reserve. Yeah, they lost, like, contact with their whole family, functionally. Yeah. Um, there were also a lot of people who were stripped of, of their status and enfranchised involuntarily. For, yeah. a, for a while, there was this policy where, like, anyone who had, like, a kind of professional job or degree was just being, like, enfranchised left and right. Yeah, I'm assuming because the Indian agent had, like, a quota to meet. Yeah. <laughs> it was a yeah. check in a box. Basically. So this was meant as um, an assimilation tactic yeah. and was finally ended under Diefenbaker in 1960. So... This change obviously sparks sparks conversations about the role and rights of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's a kind of a, a cool time period in that way. So Daphne and Chester returned to Easterville, and one thing that was really positive for Daphne, like as an individual during this period, was that um, so they were part of this like pilot project that's kind of going on. So a lot of like who Daphne calls bigwigs were like coming out <laughs> to check up on things. And there aren't a lot of places to stay in Eastervale, so they'd come and stay with Daphne and Chester. And she, they, like, treated Daphne as an equal, and they wanted to know her opinion on things. And I think that really helped to, like, bolster her confidence. Yeah. And her ability to kind of talk on equal footing with people. Yeah. So one public servant named Gary Sherbane finally convinces Daphne to sell her first piece of artwork to him. <laughs> Wow. For $30. How long does that take in her whole lifetime of painting? Yeah, so this must be, it's got to be at least 1965. She's been 
Well, she was painting when she was married to Paul already, so in, like, the late 40s. So, yeah, it's been, like, 20 years. I don't, I mean, I'm sure she was giving some artwork away. Yeah. But, like, wow, that's a long time to just paint and then hold on to paintings. Yes. Yeah, totally. He also, like, takes some pieces back to Winnipeg to, like, sell for her. Oh, this public servant's from Winnipeg, is he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, as a result, Daphne's becoming more widely known. Um, She also ends up illustrating this book called uh, Tales of the Smokehouse. Uh, I'll play you a clip from Francesca. Probably my first interaction with her work in person was these paintings that were done for Tales from the Smokehouse that are at the University of Winnipeg art collection, actually. It was published by this author, Robert Schwartz. He, like, he edited the story. Part of me wonders, kind of, like, what are the original stories like? There's a foreword that speaks a little bit to, like, it's Herbert Schwartz being like, I did this for brevity, or I've like made it, but it follows a linear plot. Um, but then you have these stories that like then have these artworks as like a companion to them. And this one into Daphne Ojig's work um, versus, you know, a lot of the other work um, that you'll see in other collections public collections were really comfortable um, acquiring that, you know, were like mother and child and um, these really beautiful portraits of like women. But um, the, the, the illustrations, much like the stories that were included in the um, compilation by Herbert Schwartz, really detail um, a lot of like intimacy. Um, there is like this really beautiful treatment to the bodies um and they really get to like the heart of the stories i think was done in like a really really good way yeah so tales from the smokehouse is it's a really interesting book um it's written by like uh, or compiled i should say by uh like a white guy mm-hmm. um and it's what herbert schwartz <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> Um, and it's a compilation of, like, erotic indigenous legends. Oh! <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't know why that was his idea for a book, but he, <laughs> sure, why not? he gets, he contracts Daphne Ojig to illustrate this for him. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting, first of all, because in terms of, like, content and theme, it's really different from a lot of what people know of Daphne Ojig's art. Yeah, I'm trying, I mean, the one piece I know is obviously the mural at the Manitoba Museum. Yes, and we'll talk about that later. Perfect. But yeah, like, thinking of... That, which is a very, like, sort of tame painting. It seems an interesting pivot. Yeah, totally. And, um, like, one thing that Daphne says is that she really credits it with helping her to become more, like, uninhibited in her work. Like, she had these concerns about, oh, you know, what do people think when they look at my art? And Herbert Schwartz was kind of saying, like, you can make that more explicit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And she's like, oh, Okay. (laughs) Which, like, I was like, oh, I don't know if that sounds good, but <laughs> apparently it was helpful to her. Well, I'm glad it helped her. <laughs> yes. Um, the other thing, though, that's interesting is there's this, like, interplay, right, between, like, the original indigenous stories being interpreted and written down by a white author and then reinterpreted by an indigenous artist. Right, yeah. Which makes it just a really interesting book. Mm-hmm. And like Francesca says, it's interesting to think about, like, what were those original stories? What what edits Yeah, did he what make? had he heard? Yes. One of the artists that Daphne is most frequently compared to is Picasso, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. Okay. 
Um, she was very inspired by him, especially kind of in her kind of mid-career work. But um, one thing that she admired was just how uninhibited he was and how he didn't seem to care what people thought of his mm-hmm. work. But yeah, Daphne also goes through this neat period where she's doing collages using materials she finds in the wood. In the oh. woods. Yeah, so she is collecting things like pine cones and pine needles and like eggshells and sort of like with a lot of them like crumbling them up and kind of using them almost as like texture underneath paint. Huh. It's really neat. There's, um, if people have an NFB account, there's um, this cool short film called The Colors of Pride which features four indigenous artists and uh, one of them is Daphne Ojing and you can see her process there. So we'll link to that yeah. on the website. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's one of those pieces that probably is better if you see it in person, right? If it's all of this like texture underneath paint. Yeah, that's true. Hey, like if you're, yeah, if we like post what it looks like online, it might be won't look that Looks crumbly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was partly inspired by Bernard Pauly, who is um, along with, uh, the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood put on Daphne's first ever solo exhibition at Brandon University. So um, obviously Daphne's beginning to like get some recognition, which is yep. really nice. Um, she's also making real money from her art now. Wow. Yeah. The Manitoba Indian Brotherhood is also probably the same group that uh, gets Prince as their spokesperson. Oh, right? yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> if you want to tie it back to an earlier episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, like, Daphne was quite supportive of them and also supported by them. But I think both her son and stepson eventually go to work for that organization oh, as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so she's finally kind of getting some success, but it's really hard fought. Um, yeah, it would have to be. Yeah. So, like, for example, in 1969, a gallery in Winnipeg is, like, they express interest in doing an exhibit. And then they pull out at the last minute without really giving her a reason. But she's kind of left with the impression that it's because she doesn't have any formal training. Oh. Um, so that's an issue for her. But there's also the broader issue of the recognition of Indigenous art. This conversation around folk art or, you know, capital A art is really important. And definitely she would have advocated and something she would have advocated for as a individual and as a member of the Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc. Um, And that argument comes from a time period when Indigenous artists were either allocated to museums um, and the museums turning around and saying, hey, we actually can't take this, this is too new. art galleries and then the art galleries going no this isn't art um this looks like it belongs in a museum go to the museums and so kind of being stuck in this um space where neither institution would accept them at at the time that Daphne was working it was a really 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 harsh reality um and something that like she addressed her contemporaries addressed, and um, that a lot of artists and curators since then have been um, resisting and and tackling. Yeah, I could see that being like a tricky thing to navigate. And then I wonder too, like how much of it is, like when you think of like what a like Western white audience would want from Indigenous art and what they expect of it. Yeah. If you're not like complying to those standards, how much success are you going to have from like 
a museum curator who wants like traditional art in the way they envision it. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like one of the things Francesca was talking about was that like what she really wants for every artist to experience in their lifetime is to be able to like, if you were to make a piece for anyone and it didn't have to be for whoever you thought the viewing public might Mm -hmm. be, you know, what would it be? What would it be called? What would it look like? Because, you know, there is a lot of pressure to produce things that look a certain way. And like, there's actually a growing demand at this point for indigenous art. Like you were saying, right? Like, you know, if if I think like if we go to our like grandparents' houses often, like my grandparents have indigenous art on their walls. Um, But it's really hard for indigenous artists to break into galleries and to be recognized properly as artists. Mm -hmm. Um, For the most part, their work is being understood as like ethnology or even as like history, right? Like as an artifact. Which is interesting because it's not normally, if you think something created today, that's an artifact down the road, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And like when I was- It's only an artifact if you assume that culture is- dead functionally that's a great point yeah it's only an artifact if you assume that this is a dead or dying culture totally and like so i went looking through old newspaper ads and there are quite a lot of them for like markets and um like eaton's had like a native art market and stuff Mm -hmm. um but now how many of those artists were actually indigenous well so this is a really good point there definitely were places selling like Japanese reproductions and stuff. Yeah. So a lot of these ads have a focus on like authenticity and tradition, which like on the one hand, it's really good that people were trying to seek out actual work from indigenous artists and not like reproductions. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, like you were saying, it, it really um, kind of limits the artistic expression of indigenous artists if they're expected to do things that looks a certain way that looks traditional yeah because like if ojig's trying to be like more uninhibited and maybe a little more expressive and that's not the way you would like conceptualize indigenous art to look like yeah you're not gonna buy it and then she has these paintings that are very cool and very talented yeah but like people just aren't looking at the right way right yeah and like even like so daphne ojig you know does get quite a lot of recognition over the course of her life but Mm -hmm. i do find it interesting that Uh, some of her biggest opportunities come from museums, not from galleries, like history museums, right? So you mentioned earlier the Manitoba Museum mural. Yeah, of course. And if you've been to the museum, you know what this mural is. Yeah. If you don't know who painted it, at least you've seen it, for sure. Yes, for sure. So um, it's called The Creation of the World. It was painted in 1972 for the opening of the Earth History Gallery. And, like, I love, I mean, I love that mural. Mm -hmm. Um. My tours all started at it for the whatever two some years that I worked at the museum. Um, it features like an indigenous creation myth and a flood and several creatures and Nanabojo. It's a really a really cool painting, but I do just find it interesting that it's in a museum, not in a gallery. Right. Yeah. Um, and I like I have really strong feelings about this kind of categorization of art. <laughs> do you? Yeah, I do. Oh, good. So, so I'll yeah. I'm gonna go on a bit of a rant here good. if you don't mind. do it. So, okay, so I think it's very similar to when forms of art like embroidery or quilting or like weaving are categorized as craft or like decorative art as mm-hmm. opposed to fine art or like Francesca was saying, capital A art. Um, and like, what is the difference between like fine art and craft or folk art? Or sometimes you'll even hear like primitive art. Is, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it then would come into like race background and even like gender in some cases, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think 100% that, like, 
I think, you know, there are things that like formal training, whether or not a piece is functional, who has access to it, but like functionally what we're doing is assigning art made by women and like indigenous peoples and by like poor people as a lower class of Mm -hmm. art. And I think so like, okay, if I were to give the argument that I think someone would give me who really believed in this categorization, I think what they'd say is that fine art is meant to evoke an emotion and that decorative art or craft doesn't do that. But that's not necessarily true all the time either. I think that's nonsense. I think it's absolute (laughs) nonsense. So like, you know, for example, if your grandmother makes you a beautiful quilt, does that not evoke an emotion? Yeah, for one thing. And on the other hand, like a lot of the art in museums is just like, here's a portrait of a rich man. Yeah. Does that evoke an emotion? I don't know. And it's so subjective on the viewer, too, on what yeah. evokes an emotion, right? Yes. I, I really think that that is a definition that we've gone backwards and applied to things because we realized we can't just be like, <laughs> <laughs> no, this person has no formal training, yeah. therefore they're not an artist, right? Is this not something that's, like, plagued artists throughout, like, the course of art history? Yeah. Like, going yeah. back even, like, I don't know, impressionism was yeah, also kind totally. of, like, it's like what is what is art? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's an endless debate that we're going to have forever, essentially, but I think we're having maybe more nuanced discussions of it now. Yeah, hopefully. I've definitely seen, like, I mean, of course we see indigenous art yeah. in, in galleries now, and I've seen more craft well, we have the uh, craft museum. We do have the craft museum. Which is and, very cool. Yes. And like, you know, like I was talking to Francesca about this and she was saying like, she doesn't have any problem with like the term like craft or yeah. even maybe folk art in a certain, like in certain contexts. But like, it's when you say that, are you assigning it to a lower category? Right. Yeah. And like the, keeping it out of like a bigger arts community. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in any case, this is a real roadblock for indigenous artists then and, and to some extent mm-hmm. still. Um, and yeah, not least of which, because like, even as artists like Daphne Ojig are gaining more recognition, the art that they sell and exhibit is almost always being filtered through white gallery owners and curators and Mm -hmm. such. So as an example, um, just of the kind of like filtering through, there's an exhibit in 1971 featuring Daphne Ojig's work, as well as Jackson Beardy and Alex Janvier. Um, they're going to come up again a little bit later. Um, but the curator writes that Daphne is, quote, a prisoner caught up in the bicultural net woven from an Indian conception of the world and of white modes of thought and behavior. So what do you think she would classify herself as a prisoner? I can tell you she does not. OK, <laughs> she responded to this pretty Good. directly. Um, so like what he's talking about there is that Daphne's known for this style that um, kind of like includes aspects of like Anishinaabe art. And also, like, cubism and, like, abstract yeah. abstract expressionism. But no, to her, this isn't a prison. She says that, like, she was comfortable in her own cultural identity. What she was frustrated by was the failure of the art world to accept her art as fine art. <laughs> and their insistence on placing it in its own category. And calling it a prison. <laughs> yeah, and calling it a prison. She's like, what are you, uh, what are you talking about? I'm not in a prison. <laughs> she says... I feel the time is long overdue to slow down the manufacturing of so many little cultural boxes into which we stuff creative art, which professed experts decide isn't mainstream. Let's not continue forever the obsession to relegate or assign creative art to narrow ethnic stereotypes. Yeah, there is there is some like aspect here of I think human beings just really like to make little categories for things. Oh, yeah, we love it. Like that was a big thing in like the Enlightenment period, right? (laughs) We were like, ooh, what if we categorize 
everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Couldn't get enough of it. Surely if I put a thing in a category, now I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something there, I think. Yeah. Which is like not necessarily malicious, but also like maybe we we don't always have to do that. Yeah. Um, I also spent a while talking with Francesca about galleries and just like how weird they kind of are conceptually. <laughs> okay, so you you took a museum class, I remember. With her. Oh, did you? Okay, yeah. Yes, she was in this course with me. So. Okay, amazing. So do you, I don't know if you'll remember this from like so long ago, but do you, did you talk about the concept of like the white cube? <laughs> no. Okay. We had one discussion once where people were talking about like what a, what a like gallery space was mm-hmm. and like what it should reflect. And one person said it should be like a cathedral or like huh an experience like that and everything like that's kind of odd that is odd i but i have seen that before <laughs> yeah that then you you almost treat um yeah you are almost treating the art like sort of objects of reverence yeah if you're in in that conception right so okay the white cube if it came up i wasn't paying enough okay. attention in that class <laughs> no no it's fine because i'm gonna explain <laughs> perfect um it's and it's a, it's a literal description. So mm-hmm. what it describes is the way that most gallery spaces have looked like since about the 1930s, which is that it's like a big like square or rectangular room with white walls and no windows. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what an art gallery looks like. Then you compare like. it to like an older school exhibition room. Yeah. Where it's like painting onto like a huge wall of just paintings kind of in like rows on the walls. Exactly. Yeah. So in, yeah, in like older kind of like art galleries that were based on like salons yes right that's the word i was looking for. yeah they would just yeah absolutely fill the wall in like a jigsaw puzzle of <laughs> wherever you could find room slap a painting in there and if yes. you couldn't if there was a tiny spot make a small make painting. a tiny painting exactly i do kind of love that aesthetic but i do also understand the move away from that i think if, yeah if you're going there to like look at art as an experience i could see that being like overwhelming yeah you go in one room and you're like okay i've had enough art today the thanks. painting i want to see is like five feet above (laughs) me also that so a big thing is putting paintings at eye height at eye level right so um so there are actually a lot of kind of understandable features about this form of of gallery but the idea is that it's meant to be also a neutral space in which to present the art it's also a lot easier and cheaper to switch between temporary exhibits Mm -hmm. um but there are also some pretty big downsides to um to featuring every exhibition in that same neutral space like the gallery itself, building a building just to put artwork up in it. If you think about it, it's really weird. <laughs> if you think about it, like removed from the context of the culture that we live in, it is such a strange action. Um, I have an empty house. All the walls are painted white. <laughs> um, you go in, you can't talk. Everybody must talk, talk in hush whispers. There's a person that tells you to look at the work and then tells you what you should be thinking from the work. And if you don't think that, you look at the work or you don't understand what's going on, then you are dumb, you know? So we have systems of like completely devoiding all of these like artworks or objects or, you know, this cultural production from any kind of context that has to do with like home or family or like the land. Because um, there's a pressure to put it in a neutral zone so that you can properly appreciate its aesthetic. Yeah, I can see that being odd. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, like, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm, like, a big art person. I may be more of an art person than, like, your sister is, <laughs> who's not an art person. She did 
she'll be mad at me for <laughs> talking has, about this. She doesn't, listen, she doesn't to listen to the podcast. We went to First Fridays and I went, oh, do you want to go in that gallery? And she goes, I don't like art. <laughs> I, she she does. She was just grumpy. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like often, like, if I'm in just like a room full of like paintings yeah. and nothing else, I have a heart, like, I don't like get things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that way. I'm not yeah. like, going to be like, oh, I understand what this piece is about, like instinctively, but I'm often interested more in like the context of a piece. Yeah. So like, you know, when we create a piece of art, I mean, certain artists probably are working in all white studios, but I would guess most of them aren't. I'm assuming many of them are very chaotic. Yeah, right? And and so it's weird to remove the context in which art is created in order to present it in this neutral But they're space. also not then creating it in like a vacuum, right? To be viewed on a white wall in front of nothing. There's yeah. like something behind the creation of it. Yes, there's something behind it. And also like Francesca was talking about the idea that like, oh, like everyone is supposed to be able to get the artwork. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes there might be artwork that was created in a context that isn't really accessible to you. That might yep. not be for you. <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure there, right? To create art that like, oh, everyone's going to like get. Yeah. Yeah. So all the ways that art is being filtered through like white people and Euro Western institutions is why it's so significant historically when uh, Chester quits his job so that he and Daphne can open a print shop in Winnipeg in 1971. Oh, okay. When we're finally in Winnipeg also. We made it here. We made it. Um, so in the shop, she sold her own prints, of course, but she also brought in work from, um, people she had met while living in Northern Manitoba. So I left, I left out a couple of, they hopped around actually through a couple of different communities, uh, throughout Northern yeah. Manitoba after Easterville. Um, and she had like, you know, made artist contacts in those places. So she was, you know, bringing in art from people who didn't necessarily have access to right, the yeah. art world. And didn't have access to get to Winnipeg either, hey? Yeah. Especially at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And what's also kind of cool about the gallery is that like, for the most part, um, in the print shop, at least, um, she's selling like art that's accessible to people, like yeah. their, their prints. Some people actually tell her that like... She starts printing, like, unlimited edition prints, which means, like, do you know what a limited edition yeah. print is? It's when they only print, like, a hundred of them or whatever, right? And they can price them for a bit more. Yes. So people tell her, like, oh, you've destroyed your career because you're printing unlimited prints of your work. And she's like, but I want people to have it and enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> do you know where her print shop is in Winnipeg? Yeah, it was on Donald. Okay. So the... um. I'll, I'll talk about this in a second, but she expands to also have a, like, at first it's just a small print shop, and she expands to have a gallery, which I believe was where the giant tiger is now. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, But yeah, she also carries work from artists like Eddie Kobanes, um, Norval Morisot, and Carl Ray, and the shop becomes a, like, real meeting space as well. Um, It's a place where, like, yeah, artists can print and sell their work. Uh, without it being kind of like, there's not huge hurdles to do it, right? Yeah, and I guess like in this case, like the gallery and print shop owner is not like this kind of like snobby. It's not a big wig. It's right? not a big it's, wig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as Daphne would say. Yeah, it's you know like I don't know if people have ever seen videos of Daphne Ojig, but I feel like she would have been a very approachable person. She's yeah. very kind of like kind and soft spoken. And... But then also what a neat space for like indigenous artists specifically around this yes. time to go and like see art that reflects them made yeah. by people like them yeah to see art to create art to print art to talk to other artists yeah and so eventually as a result of this meeting space uh seven artists who shared daphne's fr frustrations um about the art world formed a group 
So the artists were Carl Ray, Norvell Morisot, Joe Sanchez, Alex Janvier, Jackson Beardy, and Eddie Kobanes. And of course, Daphne Ojig. Mm-hmm. Um, so the group is informal at first, but their idea is that they want to find ways to support other indigenous artists who are trying to gain recognition. Um, so they call themselves the Professional Native Indian Artists Association. Um, but so Pina is sometimes what they're called for short. Um, but they become more commonly known as the Indian Group of Seven. Yes, this I've heard. Yeah, it's actually, I've, I've heard a couple different accounts of who coined that name. It's actually unclear to me. Yeah, it's a play, just in case anyone hasn't heard of this, um, a group of like earlier Canadian artists called the Group of Seven. Yes. Yeah, exactly. From, like the like early 1900s who were all like yeah. European guys. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's sort of tongue in cheek, right? Yeah. Um, it may have actually been Gary Sherbain, ja- Daphne's first customer who oh. it may have been him who coined the name but i'm not i'm not i couldn't i couldn't find that primary source so i don't know so it's just a bunch much. of like who else has been like saying they started it um so i've heard that like the group themselves started it or that it just kind of arose organically yeah. it's yeah okay hard to say hard to say um but yeah so in 1974 so three years after it opens they expand to that warehouse space and become a proper gallery um which they call the new warehouse gallery um, and this is Canada's first Indigenous-owned gallery. Really? Which is kind of wild, to be honest. Like, it's like, I have very mixed feelings where I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. And like, also, oh, oh that's that so late. This is like, what, 1974? 19... 74. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So it features some 200 paintings, prints, and drawings, um, of course, including many by this new uh, mm-hmm. Indian group of seven. Okay, I have a question I don't know if you'll have the answer for this. I doubt you will. But like today, Winnipeg has the highest urban indigenous population in the country. Mm-hmm. Was that the case back then as well? I Yeah, I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> I have to imagine it still was pretty high, pretty right? High. Yeah. But no, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the Peni is pretty short lived. Um, so there are different accounts, again, about what happens exactly. It's always hard with these things about organizations, right? Yeah. There's there's seven people here who have different stories about, yeah. about how it went. But according to Daphne, what happened was that they were encouraged basically by like a government coordinator to formally incorporate the group. <laughs> You're making a face. <laughs> I just, Why do you think that's not a great idea, Sabrina? <laughs> well, I feel like part of the issue so far is that has been like the system at large has not recognized their art as valid. Yeah. Which is why they did this thing in the first place. Yeah. So now they're kind of being asked to, like, come back, back into the system. And then also, I feel like there's a lot more, like, controls that then come in place. Yeah. That so not they... everyone involved in this big group might agree with. Yeah. So they have to do, like, formal meetings. They have to, like, write out a mandate. All this kind of mm-hmm. things. And the aim of the group, because they have to have this formal mandate, ends up being to, like, exhibit their work across the country, which hadn't really been their original idea, right? Their original yeah. idea was to support other artists. Um, they had actually, like, they had set up a fund to use some of their sales from each of the seven mm-hmm. artists to, like, support other artists. Which is a very which cool Which is model. very cool. Yeah. Um, the other issue is that Daphne's the only one of them who has experience at this point in, like, coordinating the sale of art and this right, kind of thing. Yeah. Right? The rest of them are pretty much just, they're, they're you know, pure artists, mm-hmm. right? And Daphne has this gallery experience now. Um, so she ends up doing a lot of, like, the footwork, I think, which, like, she's already trying to run a gallery. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Um, I do wonder, too, if part of that is her being the only woman in the group. Oh, or, like, she has to take all, like, the secretarial duties as well, right? Do all, write all the grant applications and everything. Um, 
I also talked about that factory with Fran- factor with Francesca in the context of how we tell Daphne's history. I'm trying so hard not to talk about Daphne in the context of the Indian group of seven, because that's kind of how that narrative shifts often. Daphne Ojig's identity as like an individual artist, an individual community member, is often subsumed by this larger narrative of the professional media's Indian artist, Inc. And so when I have the opportunity to talk about her work or to talk about her, like her contributions, um, I try to be mindful of how often I respond about her as an individual versus the group as a whole, which don't get me wrong, the professional Native Indian Inc. was very, very, very important. And working as a cohort was what they needed to do to be able to do the work that they all individually wanted to accomplish. Um, But it's also, you know, Alex Janvier doesn't necessarily have the same issue in his narrative can being subsumed. Um, Norval Morriso doesn't either, nor does Jackson Beardy. So I think as art historians, as curators, patriarchy slips into our work and um, we can feel that, that that narrative kind of slipping into to one of Daphne being part of a group rather than her own individual and her own like very important contributor to the indigenous landscape. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Like I'm less familiar with the way that these histories have been told overall. Yeah. But yeah, it sounds like for Daphne, often her story is kind of taken over by the by the bigger like group. group. Yeah. Whereas like by this point she has like how much experience doing like gallery work, supporting other artists, yeah. and then documenting has communities. A, and has a huge body of work. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you're right. Like documenting communities, documenting stories, which is really cool. So there's a lot to talk about with Daphne individually. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's certainly like no shortage of information, actually. Which which no. is often an issue we have, honestly. <laughs> so I was like Well, I think we lucked out with this one in that um Daphne Ojig is known outside of Winnipeg, yes. so people outside of Winnipeg have studied her. Uh-huh. Whereas if she was a local figure, every record on her would be in someone's basement, probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So eventually, though, the group uh, does disband in like the formal sense, but they do continue to have their kind of connection yeah. to each other. Um, and they're often still like exhibited together as well. Um, but yeah, and they're, they're this important kind of groundwork step, this grassroots step in terms of like the overall process of fighting for the recognition of Indigenous art. Yeah. Um, but Daphne, yeah, she also had a lot of other things going on. Like she's trying to run the gallery. It's not surprising to me that that, that <laughs> had to disband. She also like, she goes and spends like six months in Sweden on a scholarship. Oh, cool. Yeah. She goes to Israel for a while and paints there. Um... So, yeah, but she is back at the gallery, and at some point, Dr. William Taylor from the National Museum of Man, which is now the Canadian Museum of History, because we decided we shouldn't call things the Museum of Man. Wow, we did that a lot. Hey, we did do Museum that Museum of Man and Nature. <laughs> People will still call it that. Yeah, no, they do it to me, too, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, he, he came into the shop, um, and he asked Daphne to paint a mural for the museum. Um, specifically, though, what he said was... What he asked for was the biggest goddamn painting you can do. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. He said, I don't care when you do it. You can do it tomorrow. You can do it two years from now. Do any subject you want to. Wow. This so sounds like the best thing an artist could ever be told, right? <laughs> so this guy must have been like a huge fan. Yes. To come sure. and be like, we have, especially for someone from an institution to come in and say, we have no deadline. Yeah. <laughs> we do not have a boundary for the scope of this project. No, like... I don't know. Maybe people were able to do that more in the 1970s. Okay, but the, also around the 70s, you have to think we're coming in around like a bunch of centennials for That's provinces true. for the government. I wonder if he had like centennial funding for I the mean, museum. If you look at like the history of Manitoba, mm -hmm. a lot of our museums get like a huge amount of funding right around that 1970 mark. Yeah. So they can do cool things. Yes. And do big like municipality history books. So I'm wondering if this is coming out of like, we got a grant for like Canada's centennial. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Um, but yeah, I think he was like a pretty frequent visitor to the gallery. So yeah, he was definitely a fan. And I just, I just love that. that like that's, that's the way for <laughs> to commission to, a piece. To right? commission a piece. As just... big as you want. Did he have a budget? <laughs> yeah. So this is obviously a pretty exciting prospect for an artist. Um, the problem is that Daphne hardly has any time for her own art as it is just like regular size yeah. paintings. Um, with running the gallery. So she ends up selling the gallery to Gary Sherbin. Okay. This was like her, her yeah. very first kind of, well, financial supporter, at least. Um, along with his wife, Arlene, and their business partner, Janice uh, Cardigan. Um, it ends up being called the Wausau Gallery. Okay. So do you know the Wausau Gallery? It was around until quite recently. It closed maybe like, yeah, not that long ago. I haven't heard of it. Okay. But... It eventually moved to the Forks. Oh, okay. Then yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, But apparently Wausau was, I want to say the... Anishinaabe word for like far out, which is very <laughs> 1970s. <laughs> um, did you read the McLean's piece about uh, the Indian in transition? No, because I just looked it up because I wanted to see the picture. Okay. Um, she had to rent a bigger house. Wait, no, I'll tell you. Okay. Why don't I tell you? <laughs> because I now, uh, now I'm learning okay. and I'm excited. But you go. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes, I found so, a new source for you. Okay, great. <laughs> well, I was just gonna tell you about that. All right, yeah. So now Daphne and her family moved to BC, and yeah, she rents the house. What she does is she rents the house with the biggest living room she can find, which is thirty feet. So she fills the entire room, thirty foot long room, with with a canvas. She apparently has to like shave off a couple feet on the end so she can walk around. <laughs> um, yeah, and she begins work on the Indian in transition. So um, there are four panels. So. On the left, there's a drummer who is being guarded over by a thunderbird and looked over by Mother Earth. Um, and this is sort of like a chronological history of sorts. Um, in the next, uh, scouts see a boat of pale-skinned people. They look friendly, but the head of their boat takes on the appearance of a snake. In the third panel... One of them is doing a mischievous wink also. Oh, yes. I can tell you what that is. <laughs> um, so what Daphne said was that like this depicted horrors, but also like humor and... She referred specifically to the winking clergyman. She said, he's saying, I'm going to fix those buggers over here. I'm going to Christianize them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the third panel, indigenous people have been sealed inside of like a large bottle and they're surrounded by like poverty and decay. And Mother Earth here is depicted lifeless. Um, and at the neck of the bottle is a bureaucrat with a book of rules and regulations blocking the path of those who try to leave the bottle. Um, and then the final panel is supposed to be hopeful. The drum has reappeared, as has the Thunderbird and the sun is shining. It's a beautiful piece. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, huge, obviously. Yeah. It's a really neat piece. I think it's so neat that we have some, like, 
description of of what's in it because I think I wouldn't have made all the connections yeah. of those things. Well, the use of like humor in this too reminds me a little bit of like Kent Monk's Kent Monk's work. Yeah, which tends to be very like humorous in its yes. depiction of like Canadian like tragedies. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. Daphne says of the final panel. Once again, there is some security, for these people have rediscovered who and what they are, and believe they know where they are going. And they are still Indians, not brown white men. They have been able to harmonize their culture, their cultural beliefs within a changing world. They have been attempting to retain the best of two cultures, and above all, they are proud to be Indians. This is not the end of the story, but for some, a new beginning. So that was really significant to Daphne, right? It was this yeah. kind of weaving of two cultures and pride in her identity. Yeah, and I think it says a lot, too, about the time period that she's creating it in, too, that, like, yeah. there is at least some sense of a resurgence of all of this stuff. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so the piece is finished in 1978, um, and when the movers come to take it out, they realize that, well, the thing about making a painting the size of the entire room... How do you get it out? How do you get it out? They Uh-oh. actually have to take down part of one of the walls <laughs> to remove it. I don't know if how only they... she'd kept that barn. I don't know how they shipped it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's it's very fun that piece. Um, as the seventies come to a close, though, Daphne starts moving to art that depicts more like personal stories rather than like indigenous legends, which is what she'd been doing for a while, and what she'd become known for. Mm-hmm. She says. During the 60s and 70s, public awareness of Indian art mushroomed, and the art became fashionable. Although I was pleased with the growing interest, I became more and more concerned with what seemed to be a rapidly entrenched and touristy definition of Indian art. It seemed that a set pattern was being established as a winning formula. More and more of the public seemed to expect that since we were Indians, we should all paint as an ethnological identity, stylized and predictable. Thunderbirds were in. Legends were where it was at. So that's her in 1985. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think, you know, she had really enjoyed depicting some of these stories for a while, but she's kind of like, yeah, I'm ready to like move she on. She can do to other a- stuff. I can do other stuff. Yeah. And well, she'd spent how much of her early career doing more like what well, it sounds like traditional European works, right? Yeah. Or at least things that were inspired by yeah. that. Right. Um. So, yeah, now she's turning towards stuff that's like still very much in that like distinctive Daphne Ojig style yeah. that we know, but just like the kind of theme is different. Um, so, like, she does this painting in 1979 called Roots, which is this neat, like, um, autobiographical triptych. So that's, like, three panels. Yeah. Um, so on the left, there's, like, a harmonious life on the reserved, which is depicted. In the middle, um, the woman who's depicted turns her back and heads for the city. And we see two floating heads, which represent an identity crisis. And in the third panel, the subject is a whole person once again. So she's painting things like that that are more about her personal journey, right? Yeah, which is also, like, really interesting artistically, right? Yeah, it's really cool. And I I really like some of her – she moves more into, like, surrealism as well in some of these paintings in the 80s, which I, like, I personally Yeah, you would. (laughs) Oh, man. One time when I was taking a museum class (laughs) – Someone who I won't name from the WAG made me feel really dumb for liking Salvador Dali. <laughs> Nick, you have to cut this out. Was it? it was not. <laughs> um, I don't think it was anyway. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So some critics, though, didn't like this shift. As she's saying, yeah. some people had just come to be like, well, no. Do what we want you to do. You, Yeah, exactly. You do this kind of art. That's what we like. 
Um, and she also, like I had mentioned earlier that she was like very inspired by Picasso in, mm-hmm. in her earlier years, especially as she moves more into like abstract art. Like the depiction that she was doing in like Easterville were more just kind of, you know, pretty like lifelike drawings, yeah. right? And so when she's doing more abstract art, she was quite inspired by like Picasso, especially and Cubism. But she starts to kind of resent those comparisons. Yeah. I mean, I can see that, right? Like you've been doing something for decades and people are still comparing you to. To, Yeah. And like also by this point, she's like clearly very well known in her field, right? So what she says is Cubism and Picasso don't mean anything to me. I always see my own lines. No one ever asked Picasso whether he was influenced by Canadian art. And yet look at his masks. Who's to say Picasso hadn't seen any of our work? Um, and she's 100% right. Like, <laughs> a, a lot of abstract artists in Europe were um, part of this, like, primitivism movement, which was, like, a European understanding of styles of indigenous art. Right, yeah. But no one's really saying, like, oh, look, Picasso's work is, like, building off Daphne Ogin. <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah. No, his work is all original and hers is derivative. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I can definitely see why she would get annoyed by that. But, I mean, she responds to it very kind of even-temperedly, but I could see that. Um, And ultimately, though, that change doesn't affect her success. I think those those criticisms don't really, you know, kind of pan out. Um, She's exhibited all over the place throughout the 1980s, um, both in Canada and globally, uh, in solo exhibitions and in dozens of group exhibits. In 1987, she's made a member of the Order of Canada. And in 1989, she's elected the Royal Academy of Art. She also has, I think, at least two honorary doctorates. Oh, wow. So I feel like in the, like, from the 80s onward, she's just sort of showered with various <laughs> yeah. uh, prizes and such. Like, well-deserved, for sure. Um, so she has definitely won her place in the art world. Um, so I'll go quite quickly just through the last little bit of her mm-hmm. life here. She has to slow down a little bit in the 90s. She has a bad flu, which leaves her kind of weakened. Um, And then further towards the end of her life due to arthritis. But she continued to create until her death in 2016. Um, But, you know, she really had a significant impact. Like, when I was talking to Francesca about this, she was saying that, like, Daphne created this model of a gallery in the 1970s that people now are, like, having grants and, like, endless meetings trying to create something like that. Right? Galleries now are trying to figure out how to create spaces that feel like meeting spaces, that feel accessible, Mm -hmm. which is something that she was able to do in 1970 or 71. Um, So certainly there was that impact. Um, And, you know, there was also, like, the secondary impact of the artists whose work that she showcased, Mm -hmm. um, who you know, she enabled them to sell their art. Um, And also artists who she influenced in terms of, like, style and theme. Yeah. So, like, a couple that Francesca mentioned were uh, Quill Quill Christie and Chief Ladyfeather. Yeah. Uh, So we'll, we'll, like, link to their Instagrams or whatever on the website because they have neat work. And you can definitely kind of see the influence there, but also very much doing their own things as well. Um, But, yeah, that's you know, definitely was impactful in terms of, like, Winnipeg history and just making that kind of art more accessible, making yeah. a place for it. It's all really cool. No, it's very cool. And, yeah, wild that it took until the 70s for us to get there, but... Yeah, it's one of those things, again, where you're sort of, like, you know, I, when I was talking to Francesca about it, she was saying, like, you know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's so cool that she was doing that in the 70s, but then also a little bit sad that we're still trying to figure that out now. Yeah, how she did this thing 
That worked so well then. Yeah, that she'd managed to do kind of organically. Though, yeah. I mean, at the same time, you know, she she couldn't hold it together that long because... I mean, the, like, the structures weren't there to support that in that's any exactly way, right? right? It, it was essentially, you know, it's just her trying to do her thing. And Chester, of course. Yeah. But, but like, now if someone tried that again successfully... Yeah. Like, that would go over so well. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully there would be, you know, hopefully for galleries now, I think there are structures to support yeah. them, maybe. Well... Well... I mean, it's still hard, you know, even having to, you know, reapply for grants every year. And yeah, the funding for nonprofit groups and galleries like that has yeah. not, like, risen significantly no. in, like, decades. No, and it's so unstable, right? You can't always kind of plan from year to year if you don't yeah, know. Yeah, totally. Even when I worked at the Manitoba Museum, like, they had to renegotiate their, <laughs> yeah. like, their grant from the government every so often. It's, it's, yeah, it harms the kind of stability of those institutions totally um but yeah that was the 15th and final figure yeah of our series ending on a nice uh, resurgence of indigenous culture in an area that it had been banned from for so so long yes which yeah. is why we had picked oj as our final figure too when we had like yeah. talked about this yeah well this like is such two years ago <laughs> yeah this is such an important aspect of our our city and our you know the culture of winnipeg yeah totally yeah. And there's still Indigenous art galleries in the city today. Uh, Urban Shaman in the Exchange District. Yep. Um, I think Mawa does a lot of Indigenous art mm -hmm. off and on. Um, obviously, we've got the Inuit Art Gallery. Yeah. And the Winnipeg Art Gallery. So there's, like, lots to see. Yeah. No, definitely um, go out on, like, First Fridays. And see what's available. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really cool art out there. Um, but, yeah, we'll be back next time with a finale episode covering the kind of last 40, years? 40 or so years. <laughs> Uh, it's which... gonna be a really fun one we haven't tried an episode like this before yeah so should we leave that as a surprise what it's gonna be yeah I think so okay. it'll be different yeah so hopefully it'll be a nice change of pace we're excited to see how it turns out yeah um, and yeah come to our live show and hear um, some uh, fun stories and some fun bits and have some good snacks with us yes um, yeah so if you want to know more about any of that um you can go to our website onegreathistory.wordpress.com we've also got facebook and instagram at one great history uh we're on twitter at the number one great history uh and we're on patreon we are at patreon.com slash one great history yeah and thank you so much to the manitoba historical society um the winnipeg foundation centennial institute grant the manitoba heritage grant and the winnipeg free press for supporting this project and of course thank you to our patrons You've made this go so much easier than it would have otherwise. Yeah. We have had a pretty productive year. We've done a lot, and we couldn't have done it without your help. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll see you in our finale episode, or we'll see you at the live show. Bye.